Hello, everybody. Today, we have a very special episode of Preach the Speech. We are sitting down with best-selling author and historian Andrew Roberts. He's written a number of books, including Napoleon, The Life, and Churchill, Walking with Destiny, which has been called undoubtedly the best single-volume biography of Churchill ever written, the latter of which will be the subject of this interview. So, Mr. Roberts, without further ado, how are you today? Thanks very much indeed for having me on the show, uh, Ian and Josh. Uh, it's a great honour. And um, I'm on top form, I think. How are you? We're doing great. I'm doing excellent. <laughs> so our first question is, there has been a lot written about Churchill. So what drove you to delve into him and write about him and dig into things that perhaps have yeah, been Yes, good question. Um, you're, you're, if anything, uh, under underestimating it when you say a lot. There have in fact been 1,009 biographies of Winston oh. Churchill that have been published. Um, so uh, uh, so it's a ridiculously large amount, really. And um, the reason that I was, I suppose, hubristic enough to uh, write the 1,010th biography was because there's been an enormous um, collection of new material that's come out, a huge sort of cornucopia of new sources. Majesty the Queen allowed me to be the first Churchill biographer to use her father's diaries. And of course, he met Winston Churchill um, every week in the uh, had lunch together every Tuesday uh, during the Second World War, and then luckily wrote down everything that Churchill said. And so we have this ma magnificent new source. But on top of that, there have been 50 sets of papers, 53, I think it is, sets of papers that have been deposited at Churchill College archives since the last major biography of him, the Russian ambassador of the day. Um, we have his diaries that have now been published in Moscow. There's been um, some papers of the Churchill family that uh, that they allowed me to use, which haven't been used before in a Churchill biography. So there's a, there's a mass of new sources. And that's really the reason why I decided after writing about Churchill for nearly 30 years to write this book. Yeah. What was it like assessing these new wartime diaries? How did you feel being the first one to gain access to these new sources? Tremendously excited. And it's the thing <laughs> that historians dream of, really, and biographers. Um, we uh, are always looking for this special you know, moment. And um, frankly, to be allowed to use the King's diaries, because, of course, uh, Churchill knew the King and um, knew the King well, but they didn't necessarily get on terribly well before the war broke out because the king had been a huge supporter of the policy of appeasement of Germany. And uh, of course, Churchill had been a supporter of the king's elder brother, um, King Edward VIII, later the Duke of Windsor, during the appeasement crisis. So in fact, there was a chance that they might not have put on, but luckily they did. And um, very, very much indeed, and became you know, close friends. And so this diary, um, more than anything else, I think, more than any other single source, was the thing that really you know, got me out of bed in the morning and uh, over to Windsor Castle and the Round Tower at Windsor Castle, which is where the Royal Archives are. Right. That's very cool. <laughs> at the end of your book, you mentioned how in a survey of 3,000 students, 20% thought Churchill to be a fictional character, which blows me away. And you suggest this is an um, indicament of the virtual excising of Churchill from the school system. Why it's is the man these, these, these are British school children, obviously. I'm sure yes. you in America yeah. that Churchill was a, uh, was a fiction. <laughs> oh. um, and the worst thing was that they also thought that Sherlock Holmes and Eleanor Rigby were real people. 
<laughs> so, uh, so there's a there's an attack on the education system there, I think, as well. He's just not taught in schools. This is the problem. And um, uh, whereas whereas he is around the world, but but for some reason in his own country he isn't. Which uh, I think, considering he was the greatest hero that Britain had, is um, outrageous. Yeah. What do you think is the value of learning about Churchill and teaching him in schools? I think there are lots of values. I think um, partly, of course, it's just his personality and character, his resilience, uh, his refusal to um, to be uh, held back with any of the uh, disasters and uh, blunders and errors that he'd made in his life. He kept, he kept going on his, uh, through a tremendous sense of, um, of self-belief. I think uh, so. There are lots of um, extraordinary aspects to his character: his sense of humour, his, uh, his capacity for hard work, his capacity to uh, teach himself. He was a huge autodidact. Um, so that I think is always um, worthwhile. And then, of course, the eternal truths of um, his stance against fascism and, and communism, and uh, the fact that for many years he was the only person to warn against totalitarianism. Um, in the uh, in the 1930s, and then uh, he was the first person in the um, post-war period to warn about Stalin and Eastern Europe and uh, and the dangers of Soviet communism. So, so on top of this extraordinary prescience about uh, the dangers of totalitarianism, you also have this extraordinary personality who is a larger-than-life figure in every way. Yeah. So, c considering all those facts that you just presented, why do you think that he's so neglected? Well, um, partly it's because he was um, somebody who was born in the um, period when Charles Darwin was still alive, and therefore he believed in a hierarchy of the races. And although we today, of course, know that to be um, completely absurd and uh, obscene, in fact, um, it was considered in those days to be a scientific fact, and uh, and he believed it. And so he made various uh, jokes and references and remarks that are completely unacceptable in today's um, in today's world, you know, utterly, um, you know, much worse than politically incorrect. And so he's, uh, he's, he's sort of thought of as now being very much, so much part of the past, um, and yet not so far back, like Oliver Cromwell or Charles I or somebody uh, like George Washington or whatever. Um, as to be um, tied in to, um, into the modern mores with regard to race. And I think that is, is the primary reason for him being uh, excised from the school curriculum. Right. Well, there seems to be some critiques of Churchill that are fair and some not. Uh, some of the fair ones include Gallipoli, his support of Edward VIII's refusal to step down as prime minister after his stroke, so on. In the words of Churchill, to do justice to a great man, discriminating is necessary. Gush, gush however, quenching is always insipid. Uh, you come to the conclusion, you address these criticisms throughout your book, um, but you still come to the conclusion that he deserves admiration and praise. Did Why did you come to this conclusion? Well, you're absolutely right. He made mistake after mistake. He uh, the the, Gar the Dardanelles, uh, the Gallipoli campaign, um, left 147,000 Allied soldiers killed and uh, wounded. 
um, and it was very much his idea. So, um, so you're right there. He was opposed initially, at least, to um, uh, to the enfranchisement of women. He got the gold standard completely wrong. So you can draw up a, a long list of severe indictments against his um, against his uh, his political. Um, time. He was, of course, in the House of Commons for nearly two thirds of a century, and he was in the forefront of all of the great political issues. So I don't think anybody could expect him to get everything right, but he did get a fair lot of things wrong. But the really important things of the 20th century, um, the rise of the uh, German Empire before the First World War, uh, the rise, of course, of Hitler and the Nazis after the um, First World War and before the Second World War, and then um, the rise of Soviet communism after the Second World War, he, he was the first person to get these things right. And he got them right years before those people. And he was for many years the only person who got them right. And so I think that the um, the, the uh, sort of advantages, um, uh, the sort of victories of Winston Churchill far outweigh the very serious um, disadvantages. Yeah, that, that's interesting. So do you believe that people who do not like Churchill use these flaws as a justification for doing so? Or do you think that they have a general just distaste for him or they just want to not like him? Well, the, it breaks down. Churchill revisionism breaks down into an awful lot of different uh, groups. You do have, of course, uh, the fascists and uh, communists who hate him because of what he said and because he was the most prominent anti-fascist and anti-communist um, of his day. So they're bound to yeah. hate him. And, and he would, uh, I think, welcome their hatred of anything else. You know, that's just part of, um, that's part of politics. Then there are some people who are just frankly perverse, um, who, if they see somebody is tremendously popular and, and beloved, they want to try and knock him down simply in order to uh, draw attention to themselves. And you do get quite a few um historians who are like that and uh, they do it just out of a sense of uh, wanting to be different and wanting to be perverse mm -hmm. um you have people who just uh, are unwilling to accept his greatness because of the of the flaws and that they are so basically the feet of clay are more important than the pedestal um and um and that i think often sometimes she often goes back to a um uh, an inability to see the wood for the, for the trees, you know, and uh, it's a shame sometimes, I think, that, uh, that when you get letters about really obscure parts of Churchill's life, that, um, that they therefore think that more important than um, standing up against Adolf Hitler and destroying the most evil man who ever existed in human history. So I think you have to get everything into perspective being a historian, and not everybody does. Yeah, uh, especially we see today how the famous statue in Parliament Square was spray painted with the words, was a racist, which is quite a claim. It seems more and more people in our generation believe Churchill to have been involved with gassing Arabs, uh, <laughs> murdering three million Bengals in India, which are yeah. some wild claims. Uh, well, you and, and, and actually, that's right. And when you when you look at each of them, and of course you have to look carefully at each of these uh, claims, you realise what complete and utter rubbish they are. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, when you go to the original sources, which I've done, and look at this claim that he gassed Arabs, actually the, the word he used was lacrimotary gas, which means tear gas. 
which is used in, uh, I don't know, in cities all over Europe. And I think uh, more and more in America um, as yeah. well with um, it's not it's not phosgene gas. It's not mustard gas. It's not uh, gas that kills you. It's gas that makes your your um, eyes water so much that you can't carry on rioting. Um, with regard to the three million Bengalis, look, that was a terrible famine. But the fact was that the way in which we fed the Bengalis historically was by getting rice from Malaya and Thailand and Burma and elsewhere, which were all under Japanese occupation in uh, late 1942 and early 1943 when the famine took place. Famine took place because of a gigantic cyclone which um, hit uh, Bengal and which destroyed the roads and the rail links, um, which uh, stopped the the uh, rice from being brought in. But uh, Churchill got on to uh, President Roosevelt, to the Prime Ministers of Australia and uh, Canada and so on, and did manage to get uh, hundreds of thousands of tons of, uh, of food brought into Bengal, but just not enough because there were Japanese submarines in the Bay of Bengal. And, uh, and so for him to therefore be called a, a genocidal maniac, which was one thing that he's been recently accused of, is completely and utterly wrong. And you can see that um, when you look at the original sources and go back um, just very sort of soberly to look at the evidence. Uh, so calling him a genocidal maniac is quite the claim. And considering he stopped probably the worst genocidal maniac in history, where are these claims coming from? All over the place. Usually the, um, the internet, uh, Twitter, um, which my friend Neil Ferguson has called the universal lavatory wall. <laughs> I think is a very good summation. It, when Twitter yeah. started, I thought that this was going to be a magnificent moment for uh, world peace. Everybody in the world was going to be able to have a gigantic global conversation. We were all going to, you know, love each other, kumbaya, etc. Uh, what actually has happened, of course, is that the worst and lowest and most vicious and ill-tempered of people have been given a uh, platform yeah. to come up with things that are completely, uh, you know, disprovable um, through the evidence. Um, but uh, unfortunately, conspiracy theories can rush around the world in the same time that it takes the truth to get its trousers on. Yeah. So, what, what do you think the motives are behind this attack? These, these, all these attacks. Do you think there's anything you can do to stop them, or is it just? Yes. You yeah. can. What, what what you can do is, of course, read books like mine. <laughs> you, um, sorry for the gross advertisement, but it is true. <laughs> Go to yeah. page whatever it is, 600 and something, of Churchill Walking with Destiny. You can see the facts about the Bengal famine. I go into it over six pages or so, explaining what happened um, and what Churchill did to alleviate it. Um, I make no uh, apologies for his... Uh, these racist remarks, I go into them and uh, and report them all. And, uh, you know, it, you have to see everything in, in the basis of evidence. And, um, and and this is something you very rarely get in the in the knocking uh, revisionist uh, books. Um, they're never very long, these books, because, because there isn't there to back up the, um, the various uh, myths and, and claims. The other thing that you can do, as well as buy my book, is to um, is to go on to the Hillsdale College website, the Churchill Project web website of Hillsdale College in uh, in Michigan, 
um, and to hit the website for the International Churchill Society. Um, and they will actually show you the documents. You know, you can, you can find the documents very, very easily. You can find the arguments and, uh, and listen both for and against and, uh, listen to the truth. And so I, I think there is a lot you can do actually, because most people are reasonable people. Most people are intelligent enough to accept that if they've heard some, um, some, you know, wild, mad rumor theory about, uh, how evil church it was, that there might be another side to the story. And, uh, luckily both Hillsdale and the International Church Society, um, have, uh, have put that forward. Right. So. I'm curious. There seems to be, though, a lot of people who don't like looking at evidence or don't delve into all of it. What are the motives behind these people who want to defame Lots of them? As I mentioned, I think perversity and an attention to, to sorry, an intention to draw attention to themselves is a uh, is a strong one. I have to say, in some with some people, I have noticed severe psychological disorder. Um, uh, you know, people who are, to all intents and purposes, pretty crazy, um, who um, become utterly obsessive and fanatical about um, about various things that Churchill is supposed to have done. And um, uh, the other problem, of course, is that because Churchill's such a big name, editors will uh, run stories, however um, measly the evidence is. Last year there was a uh, accusation that Winston Churchill was unfaithful to his wife uh, and had a mistress, um, which is completely untrue. And when you look at the evidence again, it, it's, it, it explodes as soon as you investigate for minutes. Um, and yet I had to waste uh, two pages of my, uh, of my book um, exploding these, uh, these myths, which um, could have been spent much better elsewhere writing about uh, other things. Um, so, uh, yes, you do get, if somebody comes up with some mad theory about Churchill, they will get the chance to go on television or write articles in the newspapers and make a, a big fuss of it. Um, and it's only much later that um, people are really, when they, when they look into it, are able to, um, to tell the truth. And in those cases, Nine times out of ten, Churchill comes off scot-free. As I say, he made many, many errors, many blunders in his life. The idea that he was some kind of evil figure or, or a, you know, a bad man, let alone a genocidal um, maniac who deliberately wanted to kill millions of, uh, of innocent uh, Bengalis, for example, um, is complete bulldash. Yeah. So out of all the moments in Churchill's life, because he had a lot, um, from challenging appeasement to his inspiring speeches to his leadership in a time of war. In your opinion, what was Churchill's finest hour? Golly, well, I mean, I think the moment that he became prime minister on, um, on Friday the 10th of May 1940, um, of which he wrote later in uh, his war memoirs, I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour, and for this trial. Um, I think that was the, uh, was the key moment. He had been waiting all his life, uh, to become prime minister, but he'd been practicing. He'd been preparing in every aspect that you can imagine. Um, he had this tremendously powerful sense of destiny, which is why I called my book Churchill Walking with Destiny. 
And ever since he was 16 years old, he believed that he was going to save Britain and save Europe and, um, and save the empire. And, uh, uh, of course, 50 years later, when he was actually 65 years old, he did do, um, these, uh, these great things. And so I think that moment where he finally was allowed to uh, get on with the war, um, in the primary position as prime minister, um, was, uh, was the key moment. But, but there are any numbers, the Battle of Britain, the Blitz, um, very important moments in the First World War, of course, as well. Uh, it, moments in his life that, uh, that really they were just one after the other. His great speech at Fulton, Missouri on the 5th of March, 1946, in which he warned about the Iron Curtain that was falling across Europe. You know, I, you'd be absolutely, um, uh, mad, I suppose, in a way, just to choose one, but you only allowed me one, so I'm going to choose that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, Churchill is a man who's lived a thousand lives in one, I guess, and, it's clear he had some very great moments, and he was a pretty great man. Um, but younger generations, like my own, seem to see less merit in admiring great people. They see no difference between a statue of Robert E. Lee and a statue of Churchill. Why is this bad, and why should we look up to great people? Well, Churchill himself had an answer for that, really, which was when a young American, about your age, in fact, uh, came up to him at the coronation luncheon in uh, in the Queen's coronation in uh, June 1953 and uh, said said to him um, asked him for a sort of life advice basically and Churchill said study history study history um, for therein lies all the secrets of statecraft and if you can't tell the difference between a confederate um, commander who wanted to split up the Union and, and defend and keep slavery, a monstrous institution, um, and somebody who wanted to save people who were being enslaved by Adolf Hitler, um, then you really do need to study history. Uh, and also, by the way, you might also study um, your own values. Right. Yeah. So after reading all your books and articles, it seems like you have a certain distaste for modern revisionist takes on history, you know, such as Howard Zinn or the sixteen nineteen project interpretations. So I wouldn't I wouldn't bother with either of those now. <laughs> so why <laughs> far, do you believe far better historian <laughs> uh, histories of America than Zinn? And I'm afraid the sixteen nineteen project is an absurdity. And and many historians, I think there were ten very brave historians, and you do have to be quite brave to criticize um, the 1619 project. Um, and people like Alan Gelzo and others who um, pointed out the many factual errors in the argument that they were putting. The idea that the United States is really nothing more than a construct of racism is um, to fly in the face of all the extraordinary, wonderful, uh, impressive human achievements that Americans have uh, achieved over the last quarter of a millennium. Yeah, and so do you see any benefit to thinking like this or do you think it's all just just I think, unhealthy? I think I think the um the trouble with somebody um in writing a book and I've written 19 now and it's very important to uh to keep remembering that one must always be as objective as possible. Don't don't allow your 
political views to um, influence your um, your history. It's it's rule number one, really. You mustn't be subjective. And I don't believe when Howard Zinn, with his Marxism and his assumptions, was sat down, or indeed Eric Hobsbawm as well, this is true of, and uh, E.P. Thompson and any number of other communist um, writers, sat down to write their books. But they were really doing anything more than using history as a way of propagating their politics um, onto the world. And uh, I find that uh, deeply unprofessional and something that nobody should ever do. Uh, you had a question about different perspectives. Oh, yeah, that's right. So um, in different parts of the world, Churchill is looked uh, upon very differently. So, for example, in for the United States, uh, to take one place, um, he's looked on as very, he's looked on as a lot more heroic than a place like India and Bengal. And we, I've talked to people from from those countries, and he's looked at as a lot more of a tyrant there than he is in the United States. So, um, why, why would you do? Do you believe that it's this this lies around misinformation, or do you believe that there's a legitimate want in these countries to have a distaste for him? Well, I mean, of course, in India, the um, the movement for Indian independence is part of their of their national myth. It's an essential part of their creation myth. It's why you Americans need to see King George the Third, for example, as uh, as a tyrant. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Which um, which my um, forthcoming book will hopefully point out that uh, uh, you can't call him a tyrant unless you're using the word tyrant in completely the diff a different way from normal uh, from normal people. So um, uh, we all have it. You know, Al Alfred the Great was probably not the enormous, uh, splendid, outstanding figure that we Britons make him out to be. Um, the, uh, the French, of course, admire Napoleon and, and, uh, and de Gaulle, both of whom had major problems uh, with their, um, their lives, careers and, and characters. Um, each country has its foundational myth that it needs to um, believe in and, and, and propagate. And India is no um, different. The idea that a country that uh, like Britain and a person like Churchill, who gave as much to India as, as they did, uh, could be considered tyrants. If you want a real tyrant, you look at the Japanese empire, which was knocking on the gates of India in 1941 to 1943, um, which in the Philippines, for example, killed 17% of the population in the short time that they were in occupation. Had the uh, Japanese killed 17% of the Indian population, they would be responsible for 50 million killed. What stopped them? Winston Churchill, the British Army, and the Indian Army, which uh, together um, held them back in, in Burma. And so uh, that is not the action of a tyrant saving 50 million people's lives. Well, as we wrap up this interview, I have to ask this question. Uh, what is your favorite on-screen depiction of Churchill? Uh, I can't decide between John Lithgow and Gary Oldman, but I was wondering uh, the expert opinion. Well, um, actually, although Gary Oldman was absolutely superb, um, I, um, I'm not going to go quite so far with John Lithgow because um, he's he's six foot five and Winston Churchill, <laughs> so he doesn't really <laughs> tear that Churchillian. But I'm afraid I, what I'd like you to do is watch a show called The Gathering Storm. Um, and uh, with Robert Hardy, who I think for me 
uh, was Churchill. He, he got Churchill better even than Gary Oldman, who, who definitely comes a close second. Uh, Churchill has been depicted in something like 150 movies. And, uh, and so to get even to the top three or four or five, um, is, uh, is pretty impressive. But, um, but Robert Hardy or, uh, or Gary Oldman. So, all right. So before we end the interview, we just wanted to get some information on your next book. Um, just give us the highlights. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, as I say, my it's it's a biography of your last king, King George the Third. I think I'm going to call it George the Last King of America. Um, when you go to see uh, Hamilton and you see that uh, sort of lisping, uh, extremely camp figure uh, singing a song about how he's uh, hoping to kill as many Americans as possible, kill your friends and family, uh, or when you read the Jefferson's um, Twenty Eight charges against him in the uh, American Declaration of Independence, um, you, which calls him a tyrant, um, you realize that, um, that he is easily the most misunderstood and underappreciated of, uh, of Britain's, um, of Britain's uh, monarchs. He was just tremendously unfortunate that he should have been up against leaders like George Washington, a uh, brilliant polymath like Benjamin Franklin, uh, the giants like Madison and Monroe, um, your uh, you know, lawyers like John Adams, the idea that they all, and wordsmiths like uh, Thomas Jefferson, the idea that they should have all lived in the same um, place at the same decade um, is really tremendously unfair on poor old George. I am excited for you to convince me as an American. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, just give me a fair a fair hearing. That's all I'm asking for. Not uh, nothing more than that. Absolutely. Um, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Ian, Josh, you are very kind to have me on. Thank you very much indeed. And Thank you for coming on. It was great. great. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. And you. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to Preach the Speech. Please subscribe for more interviews. We have a bunch of great ones coming up. And also consider leaving a review. It really helps us out. Also, check out our other show, The World at Large. Thanks again. Goodbye.